um, working with a group called Poyman about a year and a half ago. I handed off Calvary Chapel, San Diego to Phil Metzger, as you know. And uh, Poyman is P-O-I-M-E-N, and it's the Greek word for shepherd. And it's a group of uh, Calvary pastors, about 10 of us. And on average, we've pastored about 30 years. I've pastored 32 years and uh, as a senior pastor. And, and so what we do is encourage and help other pastors, senior pastors. So right now I have just a bunch of senior pastors. I set up two-hour appointments with them each week and just coach them, mentor them, help them to learn to be leaders and pastors. And then I travel. So last week I was in Washington. Um, right, what's that mean? Oh, it's okay. So l last week um, um, I was in Washington, but so I, I stopped pastoring last March, but by July I was in Northern California and I pastored a church there for nine months. And uh, that had gone through a bit of a trauma and, and nursed it back to health and then handed it off to a new pastor. And uh, those are the kinds of things that, that we do. So appreciate your prayers. And uh, and uh, I have a little card and stuff if you want more information uh, about it and how you can pray for us, that'd be great. Well, this morning I do want to talk on uh, grace, and I'm titling this, The Grace is the Key. And uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for bringing us here to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. So give us grace now to hear all that you want to get into our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word created all things that are created. And that Word, that's God, that Word that created everything came into human flesh. And it tells us in John 1.14... And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and also true. <clears throat> and so, to make this very emphatically clear, in John 1.16, And of His fullness we have all received grace for grace. Or like the old King James it says, grace upon grace. So, full of grace. Of his fullness we've received. What was that? Grace. Grace is the focus here. And truth. We need the truth. The truth sets us free. But we can't handle the truth until we get grace. And, and just grace <coughs> upon grace. And once we get that, then we're able to receive the truth. You know, I think of that woman at the well. You know, Jesus says, hey, give me some water. And she's like, oh, I shouldn't even talk to you. And he says, well, ask me and I'll give you water and eternal life, grace. And, and Jesus just starts pouring this acceptance and care and these spiritual desires for eternal life and, and a full eternal life. And then she reveals the truth. She says, well, would that apply to me? I've been married five times before, and I'm living with a guy right now. And, and, and Jesus says that to her. I, I know about your personal life. She's like, oh, man, how did you know that? And then she says, oh, well, up here, this, this well of Jacob's where we worship. And Jesus like, 
the truth is, it's not up here, it's not in Jerusalem, it's throughout the planet, people are going to worship God, but it's not going to be a place, it's not going to be a temple, it's not going to be a well, it's going to be an attitude of heart where they're worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and that's really what the Father desires. And so we see that, God, that Jesus just grace, this poured grace on this woman, and she goes into town, and I don't think it was to tell everybody, hey, Jesus has all the insight on all my deep, dark secrets. I, I don't think that drew them out. She's just like, this guy is speaking this kind, hopeful message that even applies to me, <laughs> that even I could get in on this. And you know what a mess I've made my life. And they come running out of that city, pursuing Jesus, because they were wanting that to hear that grace for them. They wanted to hear those words of hope and kindness from this Jewish rabbi that might possibly apply to them as well. And that's the key, you see, is that we understand that, that Jesus has come to reveal himself in his fullness, and then of that fullness, we can apply it. We can eat it up. We can digest it. His the fullness of Jesus, God in human flesh, could come into this life as well. And what's it going to look like? Now, I wouldn't have guessed grace. I mean, we have other pictures. We think of Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he saw the cherubim, and, and it was holiness. And he just said, man, I am just so dirty, I, I can't do anything for God. We see John, after having walked with Jesus for three years, one of his apostles, when he got a picture of that holy scene, the sheriff from around his throne singing, holy, holy, he fell down as a dead man. Paul, he said, I got a little glimpse of heaven and I can't tell you not one thing because not any human words try to explain the least thing I saw in heaven. It would be like cussing. Can't do it. So if... if if we saw of his fullness and it was holy, holy, we wouldn't have doubted that. Righteousness, purity. I sort of would have expected, and we saw his fullness, he was full of the Spirit and power. That would have made sense. But all those things aren't there. You know, he could have made a list. And of his fullness, we saw holiness and righteousness and mercy and grace. I and mean, it could have had a whole list of things. But God's making it crazy emphatic here, and we'll see throughout the Bible, that when God came in human flesh, the, the, the thing that he wanted to leave most of all was that we would have this sense of God and his grace. Grace upon grace of his fullness. I, I think the best way to describe it if I were to describe grace, it would be out of the love chapter. You guys know that in 1 Corinthians 13. But not as you suppose. To be honest with you, I, I, I'm just sort of sick of the word love. I, I just think our English word love, and the, I mean, in almost any context, how we use the word love is just not what the Bible is talking about. I just don't think it hits the, the nail on the head. But there in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, it says, Love suffers long, which is enduringly eternal patience. 
and is kind. I, I wonder if that's just what he's saying. Love is this unstoppable kindness, period. Now, what's that look like? This unstoppable, this unstoppable kindness of God, what does it look like? He goes on in verse 4. It doesn't envy, doesn't praise itself, it's not puffed up, doesn't behave rudely, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This unstoppable kindness of God will never fail. That, that, that makes sense to me. Amen. Because when I really look at somebody who's really loving, they're full of grace. And really, it doesn't matter what the situation is, there's just this overwhelming kindness. You know, I... I, I I think that is the thing, probably, that marked the Jesus movement more than anything. Is we just had a sense of God's grace and Jesus. Jesus was just grace upon grace, and we never got irritated at each other like that. If some guy said, I'll pick you up at a certain time, and we waited an hour, when the guy showed up, he didn't say, I'm sorry, I'm late. It was just like, oh man, the Lord had me sitting here. You know, just praying, and it was so awesome. And then I read this scripture. Look, I never saw this. Let me read this to you. Or had a chance to witness to somebody. Or I've been wanting to lay out and catch some rays, and I did. I mean, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't even entered our mind to chastise him for being late. Because he's in the spirit, being directed by the Lord. We're in the spirit. And then we'd get in the car going, thank you, Lord, that you probably saved us from a car wreck had we started any earlier than this. <coughs> It's just the way we thought. And, and it was just an incredible, graceful culture where, where people weren't on edge and upset and pointing out each other's failures and weaknesses. And, and typically, they were just pointing out they were human. It wasn't even about sin. Often, we, my, wife, my wife do marriage counseling, and you know, the couples are so mad at each other. And, really just mad about being human. My husband this and that, that is like, yeah, it sounds like a man. <laughs> Do you think that women are out there married to some other species that you got, you know, the, the short straw on this? And the man's all mad. She makes me wait. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what's the problem here? That's just what we signed up for. But I think she makes me late to everything. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> Sorry, ladies, hey. they're all looking at me going, no. <laughs> that's another part of your humanity. You don't own up to the fact that you make us late all the time. <laughs> that's another part of your humanity. But it's just about them being human. It's not about some deep sin or failure. But there's just this graciousness that just isn't rude. It doesn't get provoked. It doesn't get all upset. It's just this overwhelming persistence. I, I think the best way to describe this is just some Old Testament pictures, I think, that God gave us so clearly. You guys might remember that story in 2 Samuel 9 about Mephibosheth. David had become king now over all the kingdoms. He got established in Jerusalem. Everything was in order. His government was set up. 
All the little seeds of discontent were stopped. All the way from border to border, there was peace. And the first thing on his agenda was, is there anybody from the house of Saul, this man who treated him so wickedly, literally decades of David's life were ruined because of this man. And David says, is there anybody from the house of Saul that I can find that I can bless? And Ziba, who used to be Saul's manager of everything, said there's only one guy left that is not going to help you because this guy is lame in both his feet. He's a cripple in a wheelchair. The story goes that some years later, when this nanny heard that Saul and his grandpa and Jonathan, his dad, and all his uncles and everybody had died in this battle, and David was now going to become the king, and I got to go hide. I got to take this kid in frantic mode. She was running around frantic and fell on the kid and crushed his legs. And without having the medical expertise of today, it meant he was lame for life. Interesting. Because this lady, this nanny's mind frame is often like the world. They, they picture the king. And like all kings, they would wipe everybody out, even third, fourth cousins, in case, you know, 30 years from now, some guy says, I'm the rightful king because I'm from Saul, or, or whatever. That's, that was the norm. But David never even thought that thought. But yeah, he's going to, it's going to be horrible after David's king. You're going to be oppressed. It's going to be the worst thing. I need to take you and get you out of the country or hide you so no one ever knows that. I mean, everything she thought about David was 100% wrong. Had she understood David's heart, she wouldn't have any fear at all. She would have been bringing this little boy forward much earlier. But Ziba says he's never going to amount to anything because he can't fight for you in battle. He, you know, being a cripple in that culture, he, he, no leadership position would anybody respect him in. And David said, does not matter. Get him, bring him in. And the first thing David does to Mephibosheth is says, everything Saul, your dad, his sons owned, anything extended of the house of Saul, I'm not taking one penny of it. I'm not taking one anchor of it, acre of it. I'm not taking one sheep from it. All of the wealth of Saul is intact, and it's yours, Mephibosheth. And Ziba will continue to manage all of those affairs. Uh, but on you, I want you to move into the palace, and I want you to live like one of my sons. I want you to be like one of my own children, eating at my table every single day. We see here where David was a man after God's own heart. I think we see it here more than anything. I think we get it. This is, this is grace upon grace. Giving him everything back was enough. But then to have him live in his presence, all that wealth that you're going to have from all those things of Saul, none of it you're going to be able to spend because every one of your needs are going to be taken care of right here. And 
It doesn't matter that you're lame. You, you, you get it? It's, it's, I, I'm not showing you this grace and this mercy and this kindness and this love and this acceptance to, to think that it's going to be a good investment for me later. After you experience my kindness, then I can get more from you or equal back to, from you. It'll be an equal thing. This guy could never do anything. And David's saying, perfect. And God is giving us the perfect picture. God is saying, I'm showing you mercy and love and forgiveness, not saying, okay, now that I showed you all of this, start being holy. Start doing all this stuff for me. Start, no. He's saying, how can you respond to this grace upon grace? I just want to see you enjoying it. I want you to be at peace and just receive it. You see, if Mephibosheth didn't have peace, he's thinking, there's some catch in this. It's been 10 years, but there's still some catch in this. It's been 20 years, but I'm still figuring out what, you know, what David's real motive is behind doing this. It took a lot of faith. It was looking at a nature of a king that had never been seen before. What does David want out of this? You to just accept it, receive it, and he knows you can't do anything for him, even if you had perfectly wonderful legs, even if you did stuff that benefited David. None of it would have mattered. The only thing that I want is you just have faith and just to be at peace and enjoy all that the king is doing for you. Do, do we get how important this is? Amen. Because if you don't have that equation, then anything we do for God, it, it means nothing to God. I mean, for example, let's say my wife says to me, I'm sick of it. You better start telling me five times a day you love me. I better start seeing you do a substantial amount of housework. And you better start doing your fair share of taking care of these kids. Or I'm going to divorce you. You're on probation. And I'm like, oh, man, I know I've been slacking off. I haven't been the best husband. I need to. Ah, okay, this is my wake-up call. So five times a day, honey, I love you. I'm doing the dishes, cleaning the house, playing with the kids. And, and in the middle of this one Saturday, she has five of her friends over for tea and crumpets or whatever you girls do. <laughs> and and, uh, and there you're in the living room talking and I come in every few minutes. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I just had to tell you, I love you. I go over the time. Okay, I got that done. They're watching me clean the house and play with the kids, and, and I've got to come back in. I'm sorry to interrupt again. I love you. And, and these girls are looking at this going, you've, you've got such an amazing marriage. Your husband loves you so much. He's such a great guy, just giving and serving. God, this must be wonderful for you. But what's she thinking? He's just marking boxes, man. As soon as he hits number five, I, I don't hear anything from that guy. And yeah, yeah, he's cleaning the house because he knows he's on probation. 
is, is she going to be thinking, oh, this is a loving relationship? And every time I tell her I love her, she's like, oh, it warms my heart. Do you, do you understand? All God wants is us to receive by faith all of this grace. And what does he want from you? To have total faith to just sit there and enjoy it. And, and receive in it and walk in it and let that grace give you his peace because you know that, that he's got it covered. Another story, I think, and we all know this one well, and Luke 15, the prodigal son story, right? And, and this guy is really about the worst son that's ever existed. You know? He finally, at 20 years old, says, man, I, I just thought you'd die by now. And uh, I know if I looked in the will, I'm getting a big portion of this stuff. And it just seems like you're gonna live a lot longer than I have patience. Let's just pretend you died and uh, just go ahead and give me my inheritance so I can get out of here. I mean, that's, that's, that's gotta be sort of the granddaddy of them all. I, I don't think any dad would put up with that today. But he says, here it is. And we know the prodigal son goes in a foreign country and squanders all the money. And then um, he ends up in a pig pen, feeding pigs. Now that's, you cannot go lower than that as a Jew. That is about the most unkosher uh, swamp you can get in there. But on top of that, he was so hungry, he's looking over his shoulder going, are they gonna catch me if I eat some of this pig's food? This sloppy, smelly stuff. That's how hungry he was. But at that moment, considering eating that pig's food, he came to his senses. Now, he didn't understand his dad. He, he was like, my dad? Okay, I don't think he would reject me. I don't think I knocked on his door and he'd tell, tell me to get off his property. I, that, I know my dad wouldn't do that. Would he let me be a son again? No, probably not. Would he let me be one of the slaves? Maybe, yeah, if, if I was like the lowest of lowest slaves, yes, he might might do that. So that's my hopes. I'm going to go home and, and see if dad will not shut the, slam the door in my face. I don't think he'll do that. And maybe let me live there on the property in the, the lowliest of slave position, which I'll gladly at this point receive. But as he's walking home, the only time we ever see God run in the Bible, right? Running towards that young man. And the boy starts his little speech, you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son, I just want to be a servant. I don't think he got it out. But we learn a lot about this dad. He had this in his heart for a long time. The Bible said he would go and look down the road. He finally, afar off, saw this shadowy figure. And he's ready for him. He's got the robe, he's got the ring, he's got the sandals. He, he, you know, doing uh, probabilities, he was probably going to come back this way. <laughs> Boy that's foolish enough and rebellious enough to ask for the inheritance before the dad died. He's probably not going to do a lot of wise stuff with the money, right? So he runs to him, and he shows him all of this. And then what does he do? He goes and tells the whole town come out to this party. 
and see me honoring my son, see me treasuring my son, see me looking at my son as the most wonderful thing that's ever happened. Now, what would happen typically? If he did his walk of shame and made it all the way into town, everybody saw him in these tattered clothes and smelling like a pig, and, you know, I'm sure his hair and beard and everything was a mess. That, that would have been the, the rumor. But before he got to town, the dad was out there with the robe and the sandals and the ring and walking him in. And before any rumors could get started, they're having this incredible feast, like a wedding feast. One of the greatest feasts. Everybody's going to come to it. And he's praising his son. He's saying, everybody, I'm valuing my son as highly as one can value a son. And that's the only way I will take from you in this community to look at him in that way. And boy, we, we through the son's eyes, we get it. Grace. And then what? Upon grace. And this father is just so full of joy. Now, the story didn't end there, does it? We now see this older brother. And he is angry at dad's grace. He is bitter at dad's grace. He is going to do anything he can to talk his dad out of not being graceful to his younger brother. And then he starts in his self-righteousness. I didn't do that. I, I stayed around here. I kept working. But then he reveals his heart. He said, I'm not like that younger brother of mine who took that bag of money, went to a foreign country, and spent all that money on prostitutes. Well, how would he know that? He wouldn't know that. He just revealed from his heart what he would do with a bag of money in a foreign country. He'd spend it all on prostitutes. <laughs> you see, the fact is, is, is all of us are going to get into that place that we need loads of grace. Life, life is long. <laughs> and life has a lot of valleys, doesn't it? And, and we sort of learn afresh and anew as year after year goes by, where Paul said, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. A wretched man that I am. You know, I think I understand what a wretched man I am now better than I did when I was 15 or 20 or 30. I mean, I, I, I realize the grace that God gave me was far greater than I ever imagined. But this older brother couldn't get it. That this was the father's nature. He wasn't doing something to prove a point. He loves his son. And, and, and that sometimes sons really crash and burn in a big way. And when they do, fathers that are full of grace upon grace envelop them in grace to take that shame away. He envelops them with everything that they could have had, should have had, he quickly restores it back to them equally to what they had before their, their little foolish trip that, that took them into such a, a miserable low place. We get it, right? Romans chapter two, verse four, we know that verse. It's the loving kindness and tender mercies of God 
that lead us to repentance, isn't it? Amen. Real repentance isn't the rapture's coming, you better get right because the rapture's coming tomorrow and you're going to get left behind. Oh, I repent. Well, we know that's not going to be a true repentance, right? Or somebody, you know, tells you a Bible study on hell and, and, and you can feel your flesh burning in the lake of fire and, ah, oh, repent. I think all those things are true. We need to know them to understand the, the boundaries and the gravity of what we're being saved from and what our true destiny was without Jesus dying on the cross and raising again. But true repentance comes when they're overwhelmed with grace and love. That prodigal son sitting in bed that night just getting acceptance and love and hugs and a great meal and, and praise from the Father and, and adoration from the Father and being treasured by the Father. He's laying in bed going, I'm going to be the best son I could ever be and ever. I'm going, to, I'm going to live every day of my life to honor my dad, isn't he? And it's going to be genuine. He's going to get up in the morning and start working, and it's just out of this heart of joy, having responded to the loving kindness and tender mercies of his dad. And, and, and his dad can receive that, and he can walk in freedom and enjoy. You can't do this unless grace is involved. There's no other equation that can be built. Well, the next thing I want us to understand is the depths of grace. And again, I think two stories cover this. You remember the story of Jonah, right? The guy who's told to go to Nineveh. Today, that's Mosul, Iraq. We, we know these things now, don't we? <laughs> that was the real Christian pocket that ISIS just killed everybody, tortured them everything up. A lot of them fled to America. A lot of them are here. But there in Mosul, Iraq, they have up on the mountainside a tomb to Jonah. Every year they have a parade uh, remembering Jonah. We actually had a lady in our church for many years from Mosul and uh, she told me all about it and she moved to Nashville. Can't blame her, can you? Anyway, but Jonah was told to go and tell the Ninevites that it's a dumb deal, their wickedness has reached the heavens, they're like this cancer on the earth that God's going to burn out before it affects any other parts of the world. Just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, it's, it's judgment time. When Jonah heard that, he got in the boat to go the opposite direction. And we know that story, right? God ahead of time had created this great fish that would be able to swallow Jonah up and, and swim him around and torture him for a few days until he finally said, okay, God, your way. I thought so. Throws him up. And Jonah goes to Nineveh. Now, now, history tells us, not the Bible, that sure enough, those Assyrians were incredibly wicked people. Their captors, they skinned them alive and they took their skin and put it on the wall of their uh, outer wall of their city that they would keep their captures for years so they had somebody new to torture every day. So when people came into Nineveh, they would see for miles tortured people hanging on crosses or something similar to that, impelled. And then they had this, this giant hill of skulls and bones right before you get to the city to let everybody know 
And history tells us that they did indeed attack northern Israel, which would have been that Galilee area, and that they did horrible damage. And so most commentators speculate that Jonah saw this as a little boy. Maybe his mom and sister raped and murdered. It's, I don't know. It was, it was deep, running deep in this man. He hated these people more than anybody on earth. But he gets to Nineveh. It's a huge city. And, and Jonah is going to be the worst prophet he could be. You know, 40 days comes destruction. What's that? Uh, shut up. Leave me alone. Uh, 40 days comes destruction. And he's just trying to get through there, mumbling it. Doesn't care if they understand him. He's just, but what happens? <laughs> the people said, I think we're in trouble. And they, they <laughs> repented before God with sackcloth and ashes. And, and Jonah finally gets through and he climbs up on the hill and, and he's just bitter at everything. And, and then sure enough, God didn't destroy the place. And he was so angry at God. Interesting. I mean, God literally chose the absolute worst person to be the prophet. There was going to be no compassion, no kindness, there, nothing from this guy. But nevertheless, God's taking this great equation to teach us something. And Jonah tells us in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry that God didn't destroy the place like he said he might. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know, I know, he's a prophet of God. I know the nature of God. I know who you are, God. And because I know your nature and I knew who you were, I wanted to go the opposite direction from Nineveh. What does he tell us? I know that you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. I, I know you. Even though the fire's already stoked, <laughs> The coals are already burning. You're ready to just come down and destroy this place. I know who you are, God. And if you saw one little drop of repentance, if there was just one little thought from some child of remorse, you would just turn it around. didn't want you to turn it around. So even though they're days away from being destroyed, even though you, you chose the exact wrong person for this job, the absolute antithesis of what should have been coming here, I still knew the odds were in their favor. Think of that a minute. I still knew the odds were in their favor because I know you. And you're gracious. Gracious to who? A people that are so wicked, there's nothing redeemable about them. God uniquely would have made them a group of people in human history destroyed supernaturally by the hand of God. Almost never happened. 
but yet they were going to be one of these very, very unique things in thousands of years of history. But even that wicked of a people, Jonah knew what we all should know, the grace and mercy and loving kindness of God, that this is who he is, breaking through to the most wicked of people on earth. The next story is in Psalms 106. Great psalm, I can't read it all. But in verse 36, 37, 38, it says this, They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons, and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Did you hear that? They sacrificed their little babies to demons. To the Canaan, the, the Canaan idolatrous worship of baby sacrifice. Skipping down to verse 43, 44, and 45. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel. For where they were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant, relented according to the multitude of his mercies. Radical. These people got so compromised that they were willing to take their own babies, these Jewish babies, and burn them in the eyes of the Dagon, or in the arms of the Dagon, or burn them in the fires of the Asherahs because they required an infant sacrifice. And God, in looking at this putrid sin, allowed these other people as he'd warned them that would end up oppressing them. And he would see them oppressed to the nth degree. And what did he do? He would remind them of their covenant. They were so far away they didn't even remember about God. Or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reminded them. And then he showed mercy and forgave them. But was that the end of the story? No. They would fall back into that compromised place and do it again. Many times they got so polluted that this entire country was into baby sacrifice. And don't, don't say it was just some idol. It says plainly here, yes, it was a pagan god, but those pagan gods were of demons. Demon, the power of demons were behind it, demanding this infant sacrifice. But God forgave them. Way back when I was in college, I worked at a pharmacy. And, and one day working there, and I was young and experienced, this guy came in, and this is back in the late 70s, early 80s. And, and this guy came in looking exactly like a mafia guy from New York. And, and I believe he was. But I was there at the front desk, and he was looking at books, and I said, hey, there's Hal Lindsey's book, Late Great Planet Earth, what's that about? Oh, it's, it's, it's about, you know, commentary on the book of Revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ, and oh, yeah, no, stay away from that God stuff. Very dark. I can't explain it. It was just a very hopeless man, little guy that, and I just said, no, 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 you know, you need to get right with Jesus and start sharing the Lord with him. And, and, and he's like, yeah, pff, I've done stuff that not even God can forgive. Uh, no, no, God, no man can forgive what I've done. I'm like, no, it doesn't matter what you've done. Well, you don't know how many years I've lived like this. And I'm like, it doesn't matter how many years you've lived like this. 
God's grace is greater. His love and mercy is greater. And then the guy's countenance just turned more wicked than ever. And he said, don't say another word. I don't remember if he threatened my life or whatever, but I just knew that he wasn't going to receive it and he just walked out. Well, since then, I find I found people like that that will just they're they're fully convinced that there's no hope for them, that their sins are so great and so many and so deep and they've tried so many times to do good and they fell backwards again, that that even the grace of God is is done with them. And I look at them now and I say, Oh no, are you telling me that you've sacrificed little babies? Killing them, worshiping Satan. And they look at me going, What? No! I don't do anything like that. I'm like, Oh, okay. I just want to let you know if you had, <laughs> God can forgive that. It says right here in Psalm 106 that, that He forgives that. And then, you know, I haven't sat down anybody else yet. Oh, yeah, you know about me. You know? I mean, so far, it's less than that, whatever their sins are. This is what we're understanding, is that God's grace. We, we get it, right? Romans 5, 20, we know that well. But where sin abounded, grace abounded what? Much more. I, I hear people from time to time misquoting us. They'll say, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And I'll say, what? You're misquoting that verse. Where sin abounded, grace abounded what? Much more. <laughs> It's not just grace, it's grace upon grace. In Proverbs 24, 16, the righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. That within God's definition, righteous people need grace. Righteous people sin. God in his equation says, here's my righteous ones, my holy ones. But, I also know they're in human bodies and they're going to fall. And I'm not overwhelmed when they do that. I got grace to pick them right back up. I mean, if you look to the Bible, right from the beginning to the end, this is the message. You know, we think of Noah, one man against the whole world. Everybody was a Democrat except for him, <laughs> one Republican. Yes, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> The whole world. <coughs> and, and this wasn't for a few days. This was for hundreds of years. For 500 years. The whole world was polluted and wicked. Anybody want to have 500 years of Monday mornings? <laughs> 500 years of going to the dentist? Time for your dentist cleaning. It's like, oh, man. Right, it's like 380 years into it, you're gonna go, God, please soon. I, I can't live to be 400, and then you're in your 500s. That's just a lot of years to be on a wicked planet with people just doing abominable things. And he's building that boat, and 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 he's the only guy who's right. Everybody else is wrong, but man. Not anybody to support him. Nobody to agree with him. 
man. And it, and it says that he, he just walked by faith, had a walk with God, and then the flood came. <coughs> and then right after the flood, what's one of the first things that Noah does? He starts planting grapevines, not because he liked grapes. He wanted to make alcohol. The Bible tells us the last thing we hear about Noah is he was laying drunk, naked in his tent. That's the last thing. And, and he's there, you know, having a really rough week, <laughs> sinful day, and that's when the kids show up. You know, those kids, they always show up the worst time. Dad, surprise! And the Bible says, oh, that's the last thing you're going to hear about Noah. But what's God trying to say there? What's God trying to say? He's trying to say, guys, the most righteous people on earth, the most brave, courageous people who have stood for me on earth, they're people that are still sinners, that struggle with their bodies, that struggle with sin, the struggle with failure. And this is why I am who I am. I'm a God of grace. And I couldn't wait to get into human flesh and start living this life to show you grace upon grace. I wanted all these situations, me and this woman caught in the act of adultery, going home to eat with that tax collector who everybody despised. I wanted to be around all these struggling people and I just wanted them to see my reaction. I wasn't shocked. I wasn't like, oh man, sorry, we only have 11 apostles now. Oh, now we're down to 10. You know, year into Jesus' ministry. Well, we're down to two apostles. You know, he's just like, he wanted them to see that, that, that he had this eternal kindness and that no matter what they said, no matter what they did, no matter how many times they said or did it, they were just going to find us loving, kind, merciful, gracious, forgiving person. You see, that's, that's who we are. We're to go into the world and preach this gospel. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul said, I received from the Lord Jesus Christ and testified, preached to you the gospel of grace. Paul said that's the gospel. The gospel is to go into the world and reveal to the world there is this God who never stops loving, never stops forgiving, never stops having mercy, never has one negative thought. He doesn't rejoice in iniquity. He doesn't, he doesn't rejoice in sin. He doesn't condemn you. It's interesting that that Romans 7 passage says things I don't want to do, I do, things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. This is the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament now. Who will save me from this body of wretchedness? What's the answer? Really no answer. He just says, thank goodness for Jesus Christ. That was his answer. And then chapter 8, verse 1, what's the next verse? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. When I was young, I, I was just trying to be holy, trying to be holy. 
Every week I was sinning. I thought I had to wait to get to church to get forgiven. So every Sunday I couldn't wait for the sermon to be over so I could run to the altar and get saved again. And I, I remember them telling you, go tell the world. And I just thought, I don't want anybody to know. This is such a burden. Just to always be failing and God's upset with me and probably on the verge of going to hell again by Monday, you know, noon. I gotta wait till next Sunday. Think of this, the gospel. Who doesn't want to give this message? Who, who doesn't want to fill the world? This is what the church is to be. This culture of just grace upon grace, mercy and kindness in the marriage, as parents, in the workplace. Go into the world and be a light, be the salt. This is it. Jesus finally came into human flesh, full of grace and truth. We need to proclaim the truth, and not until they get the grace. Not until they've experienced the grace upon grace. Not until of his fullness we've received, and we walk in that grace, always kind, always merciful, always loving, always gentle, always hopeful. Doesn't matter what your sin is, doesn't matter how numerous. God's grace is greater. The work on the cross is complete. It is finished. It, it's, he didn't, it wasn't a half done cross. It wasn't a weak cross. His blood wasn't, you know, taking care of 30% of things. Mm -hmm. Jesus' cross wasn't 100%, it was a gazillion percent covering everything. Every sin, past, present, and future, every weakness, every failure, every shortcoming, all our humanity, he knows our frame, he knows we're like dust in this human flesh. Jesus knows. He, he came into human flesh. And he experienced it for himself, how weak and addictive and sinful and, 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 and how hopeless our flesh is sometimes. Jesus was in that. A holy, righteous, without sin Jesus knows what it's like to have those hormones going through your body at 13 years old. He knows what it's like to be so angry at that crazy neighbor. <laughs> he knows. And this is why we need to live in this. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says we have a great high priest who sympathizes with all our weaknesses because he himself was pushed to every limit, never sinned, but he, he, is, he knows. Therefore, let us come boldly into the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace and the help in the time of need. Notice grace is mentioned twice. Therefore, get it. Our, our father, our father is the father of the prodigal son. The prodigal son coming home and he's like, Dad, I messed up and I know you. I know you're going to love me and I know you're going to put a crown, I know you're going to put a robe on me. I know you're going to put sandals. I know you're going to have a big feast and I know that's who you are and I just, oh, forgive me. I, I need mercy and a big hug and grace and, and kindness. And See, faith now, we know. I mean, we're still humbled by it. Our sin, sin hurts. Sin hurts others. Sin hurts us. 
Sin grieves the spirit, but it's got to be out of a heart of love that we're wanting to be righteous. It's got to be out of a heart of love to, to want to follow the Lord and obey the Lord. Interesting that the very last verse in the Bible is in Revelation 22, 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I mean, just think, you have the responsibility. Sum up the whole Bible, you got one sentence. Well, we know God had that job. <laughs> but here John's writing by the holy power of the Holy Spirit. The last thing God says, like, you can forget everything else, but don't forget this, right? I gotta, I gotta try to sum up all the things from Genesis, all the thousands of years of human history. I gotta get one message out. It's like whatever happens, what does he say there? Just clear as day. Just soak up the grace. That's it. If, if I know you get the grace, if I know you have faith in the grace, then you're living in that grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That's it. That, that, that's, that, that will that's take true. care of everything else. Yep. That will solve all those issues. Well, there's so many verses I didn't share in, in this message today, but uh, you have the, the notes in there. I'd love to talk more and more about this. But I think we got it, right? Amen. Lord, we come before you now. And we just want to know you, Lord Jesus. It's in knowing you, following you, loving you, serving you. Lord, is all the fullness. And how we just love to come to our gracious Heavenly Father. How we love to come to your throne of grace, Jesus. And how we often say, I need forgiveness and mercy and kindness. And you're always giving us all the grace we need. Thank you, Lord. If you're here today and you, you just haven't had faith in the grace of God, you've been trying to hang on and, and you're coming in here all beat up and Satan's condemning you, you're condemning you. Maybe in your mind, other people are condemning you. Get it now. It says by faith we are saved as we believe in the grace of God. By grace we've been saved through faith, having faith in that grace of God. Maybe that's just you right now. You need to get saved. Look to Jesus. Say, Lord, thank you for all your grace. Thank you for paying the penalty of my sin on the cross and your blood being shed and dying and praising again. I received that gift. I'm blaming my feet. I have nothing to offer, never will. And we know now, Lord, it's just coming. And, and the gospel, the truth, salvation is just receiving by faith. All that you want to do for us, all how you want to love us, all the mercy and kindness you want to add to us, we thank you and we receive it in Jesus' precious name.